Good morning, everyone. My name is JB with Not By Works Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. It is Monday, August the 7th, 2023. Thanks for joining us today. We're coming off a great weekend yesterday and Saturday. I had a great podcast Saturday as we talked some more about preparedness. And yesterday, a fantastic day of worship at Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia. I hope you get the chance to uh, to watch that, uh, that service or uh, listen to the podcast, either one. Our videos are all available on the videos tab at our website, notbyworks.org, or our Rumble channel, NBW Ministries. Uh, but uh, looking forward to a great week this week. You know, we kick it off today with episode five of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions, and I've got some uh, great questions lined up uh, that you sent in, a mixture of a variety of questions here about Bible, theology, current events, uh, preparedness, uh, clarifications on some of the things we've talked about in recent uh, podcasts. So we'll get to that here in just a moment. <clears throat> but I want to mention that uh, we've got some great guests this week. I hope you'll kind of make plans to uh, listen to as many of our podcasts as you can. Uh, tomorrow, uh, I'm going to be doing a special podcast with Christian Underground News Network entitled, Things That Can Never Undo the Believer's Salvation. Things That Can Never Undo the Believer's Salvation. That's tomorrow. And we chose that topic because I've interacted you know, recently several times with people who are struggling with the real nature of grace and what it means to have eternal life and uh, the question of whether you can somehow lose your salvation or disprove it. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, no, no, you never can lose your salvation, but, you know, you can disprove it or invalidate it or prove you never had it. Of course, either way, you end up in the same uh, just uh, Pandora's box, uh, according to which uh, works become the determining factor of whether one goes to heaven or hell. So we're going to do a whole podcast. I've already talked to Curtis Chamberlain about uh, some of the, the, the list of things that people tend to think can somehow undo their salvation. So that's tomorrow morning. Then, of course, tomorrow night is Prophecy Night, and we're going to dedicate the whole hour tomorrow night to questions and answers. We're getting a a steady flow of questions from people about prophecy, and so I've uh, reserved some of those for tomorrow night. Some of them we'll get to here in a moment on today's podcast. Wednesday is World Events Update with Randy. I've got Dr. Nathan Jones back on Thursday to talk about the Mighty Angels of Revelation again, part two of that uh, ongoing discussion. Uh, my good friend and technologist Shane will be back again with us on Friday as we talk about the double-edged sword of technology and tyranny. And looking forward to that uh, podcast with him. And then uh, we'll have uh, another installment in our preparedness uh, series on Saturday uh, with Randy on how to prepare for a natural disaster. So really looking forward to a great week. I appreciate your prayers and encouragement. Uh, we're getting very close on the new book. Uh, the Lord's just really uh, given me some great motivation and spent a lot of time the last week and uh, already this morning, uh, some uh, working on the book and just uh, thankful for uh, the time and, and just the opportunity that he's given me to, to write. I love to write. I love to get the message out. And it's a, a key topic, the spirit of the false prophet. And so we're uh, looking forward to having that out. Hopefully, as I've mentioned many times in uh, September, October, that's the target that we'll have uh, inventory in stock and ready to start uh, selling. So pray for us as we finish up that book. All right, uh, let me j jump right in. Lots of great questions here in no particular order, except that I do try to uh, put them in order in which they were received to some extent, just so people aren't waiting extra long. And so uh, we'll start with a question, and we get these from time to time, asking for my opinion about certain 
people, evangelical leaders, uh, authors, Bible teachers, and, and what I know about them. And this is a question about Ray Comfort, uh, Ray Comfort rather, and his uh, presentation of the gospel. And I have actually addressed Ray Comfort by name in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, and uh, that's because I do believe he gets it wrong. I appreciate uh, some of his methodology, I think it's a great idea, as he has suggested, to uh, point out the peop- to people that they, they cannot keep the law, that the, that the Ten Commandments are vital, and they, if they break those, they've broken the whole law, as James, the Lord's brother, said. Uh, but uh, where he gets, uh, I think, far afield from the biblical notion of grace and the gospel is in what he tells you to do about it. And, uh, of course, he believes you've got to forsake all your sins and surrender your life to Christ and make a promise or pledge to him that you're going to live right, make him the Lord of your life, that type of thing. And I I just disagree with that strongly. And we're going to be talking more about that uh, tomorrow. Uh, But, uh, you know, if you've followed our ministry for very long, you know that uh, the very name of our ministry uh, tells you what our passion is, and that is not by works. Uh, Titus 3.5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So I would just encourage you to uh, listen and read uh, Ray Comfort uh, carefully and uh, make sure that uh, you know you don't uh, you know overlook some of his, uh, I think, uh, problematic presentations of, of the gospel uh, there. I'm sure he's a great guy. I've never had the chance to meet him. But again, I did uh, critique uh, some of his writings and in my uh, first book uh, many years ago called Getting the Gospel Wrong. So our next uh, question uh, relates to um, the mark of the beast. And again, we get this question a lot in various iterations, but I, I do try to answer all of them. And they want to know that uh, they, you know, they've seen some things in the news. I think it's from Amazon and maybe some other companies where they're allowing you to pay by your hand. Uh, you just put your hand, wave your hand over something and it takes a payment. And they said, could this possibly, possibly be the mark and should we stay away from it? Well, again, it's not the mark because the mark of the beast will not come into play until after the rapture when the Antichrist and false prophet uh, take over the world. And I talk about that quite a bit in my new book. We have a whole chapter dedicated to uh, the uh, financial control grid. Uh, The new book, of course, is about the false prophet and his role as the first lieutenant, so to speak, of the Antichrist. So you never have to worry about anything today being, quote unquote, the mark of the beast. The technology behind it uh, could be what leads to uh, you know the mark of the beast. And certainly, given the description of Revelation 13, some of the things we see uh, happening today seem to fit the bill quite well. Uh, but uh, as far as should you stay away from it, I think there are practical reasons to stay away from it. But it, it again, it's not the mark of the beast. No one needs to worry that you know they're kind of selling their soul to the devil or something crazy like that if they take the mark. That's not the case. I mean, if they you know use this technology, that's not the case uh, at all. Believers today are eternally secure. If you've trusted Christ and Him alone for salvation, you need not worry about where you're going to spend eternity. Jesus gave you eternal life, and if it's eternal, it can never be lost. If you could somehow end up in hell after believing the gospel and receiving the free gift of eternal life, then Jesus is a liar, and He didn't mean what He said, but He said, I give you eternal life, and you shall never perish. He meant that. So nothing we can do after that can cause us to end up in hell, and again, the mark of the beast is not even relevant for us today, other than the fact that it's uh, 
you know, a sign of the times and we see the stage being set for that mark to be rolled out. But we will not be here. We will be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath and we won't have to interact with that uh, tyrannical regime of trying to cause everybody to take that mark so that they can buy and sell. Uh, so, I, you know, should you, uh, you know, participate in technological uh, innovations that seem to lend themselves to the type of technology that the Antichrist and false prophet might use? Uh, again, for pragmatic reasons, I would say uh, probably not. I mean, you're just sort of buying into the system and uh, making yourself vulnerable to, uh, you know, identity control and things like that. Um, but it's not a moral issue. It's more of a wisdom issue. So I hope that helps answer that question about the mark of the beast. Um, let's see. Here is a question about, uh, you know, uh, another personality that's out there, uh, Dave Hodges. Um you know, I, I've never met him. I have watched a lot of his stuff through the years. Um, I think sometimes he has some helpful uh, sort of breaking news or information that, uh, that you're not going to get in the mainstream news. But again, I would be cautious with Dave. First of all, I don't know where he stands doctrinally. He's not really a, a Christian per se a guy. I mean, he, he may be a Christian and he certainly talks about the Lord from time to time, but he's more of a sort of pop culture, you know, geopolitical news type of guy sounding the alarm. Some of what he has said I found, uh, you know, helpful, but quite often he, he does seem to be pretty sensationalist. And he's one of those guys that, you know, more often than not, the types of things he says are going to happen don't end up happening when he says they're going to happen. And often he doesn't come back around and say, you know, I was off by, you know, a year or two or three or never on some of these things. So, you know, you got to learn to listen to some of these guys with, uh, you know, uh, a grain of salt, and in some cases, a great huge bag of salt, uh, because, uh, you know, they're, you know, that you can eat the meat and spit out the bones. They have some good information, but uh, they're not necessarily connecting all the dots up properly. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I would be a little bit careful about, uh, about him, but again, not criticizing him and not saying you should avoid him necessarily. I just think, you know, he's, uh, he's sometimes can be a little bit uh, sensational. Uh, here's a question about the prodigal son that we uh, see in Luke chapter 15. And uh, this is, you know, the person is saying, does this teach that we need to confess and uh, repent and leave the life of sin in order to be saved? Uh, not at all. Not at all. In fact, uh, you know, and we may get into this some on tomorrow's podcast, but uh, the word repent uh, is never even used in John's gospel. And John's gospel is the one gospel that explicitly tells us the reason it was written was to tell us how to have eternal life. And so if John writes to tell us exactly how to have eternal life and never mentions repentance, that ought to tell you something. Um, repent just means change your mind. It's the Greek noun metanoia or the Greek verb metanoeo, uh, to change the mind, uh, to think again is the literal wooden translation. And uh, in the broadest sense, as I've talked about before, uh, you know, you can say salvation in general involves a change of mind. You've changed your mind about who you're trusting to give you eternal life. You used to trust yourself or your good works or your good behavior or your religious heritage or your baptism or some other earthly work. And instead, you've come to realize that none of that will save you and only Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for your sins can save you. And so you're now trusting in Him. And that whole concept of placing one's faith in Christ 
uh, is referred to a time or two in Scripture as repentance. But never does the Bible say you've got to stop sinning or turn from your sins or forsake your sins in order to get into heaven. That would turn salvation into a bilateral contract or agreement between us and God, according to which we make a promise to turn from sin, and God says, okay, if you really mean it, I'll let you in. But that's not what the Bible says about salvation at all. It's all by grace, a free gift. Grace, by definition, means free. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. And we're saved only by grace. It's a gift. You, you can't do anything to get it. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times, especially Calvinists, will try to redefine the meaning of faith, and they'll say, oh yeah, no, I agree, you're saved only by faith. But faith means turning from all your sin. Uh, no, it doesn't. A simple uh, entry, you know, examination of the Greek lexicon will show that faith just means confidence or assurance. And it's so when you place your confidence and assurance in Jesus Christ and Him alone that you're saved, faith in Jesus Christ. In my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have an appendix that lists uh, more than 160 references where faith alone is said to be the only condition for having eternal life, not repentance of sins. And the few passages that, that do use uh, you know, repent, uh, because remember, the word uh, believe, uh, you know, faith is used 100, the verb anyway, uh, is used 108 times, I believe it is, uh, or no, I'm sorry, it's used 241 times, 241 times in the New Testament, and uh, the noun and Greek verbs combined uh, of repent are used only 58 times, and almost all of them are in the context of a change of mind about you know you know your behavior or getting into the kingdom or that type of thing. So uh, a lot of them in the Gospels with Israel, uh, but there are like I said a couple I can't remember how many maybe four or five that in the broadest sense just talk about repentance. Uh, for example, Second Peter three nine comes to mind. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. In other words, God wants everybody to change their mind and believe in Him. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He's drawing all men to Christ. Right? That's the that's the goal. So repentance there, of course, it doesn't mention sin. It's just saying change your mind. So a person, in order to have eternal life, has to recognize they're a sinner. Obviously, you're not going to believe in a savior if you don't think you need a savior. So understanding and recognizing that you're a sinner is absolutely a it's one of the five core elements of the gospel that I discuss in getting the gospel wrong. But turning from that sin or forsaking that sin is another matter altogether. You cannot turn from sin or forsake sin until after you've already been saved and have the Holy Spirit within you. Uh, turning from sin uh, does not uh, you know, make you a Christian. It just might mean you end up going to hell from a different direction. You know, you can turn your life around all day long and it doesn't save you. Uh, and you can promise to turn your life around all day long and it doesn't save you. So contrary to what some Calvinists uh, teach, or all Calvinists actually, this notion of fiducia, they call it, uh, faith does not involve a turning from sin. Faith is simply trusting or having confidence in something. And when it comes to eternal life, it's the object of your faith that saves. Uh, people can and do believe many things in life, but only one thing when you believe it will actually give you eternal life and cause you to immediately become a child of God. And that is faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again uh, for our sins. So back to the prodigal. Uh, the story there, Jesus is speaking to Israel. It's in the midst of three of the parables that he tells back to back. It's the final one of the three, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the lost son. And he's really trying to get the Pharisees' attention there and unbelieving Jews' attention 
And so he paints this very vivid picture that would have had the Jews in the first century sitting on the edge of their seats as he masterfully you know, un- unfurled this uh, story. Uh, but he describes a older brother and a younger brother. The older brother dotted all his I's, crossed his T's, was the consummate keeper of the law. And, uh, and yet the younger son thumbed his nose at the father, squandered, you know, demanded his uh, inheritance, squandered it, wound up living with pigs, which is like the worst thing you can do as a Jew. But finally, he came to himself and he said, and this is the pivotal phrase, uh, not only in these three parables, but also throughout the Gospels, frankly, uh, he said, I am not worthy. He came back to the father and said, I am not worthy make me as one of your hired servants. And that that phrase, I am not worthy, indicated that he recognized there was nothing he could do to save himself. He needed uh, the father to save him. And so in the parable, it's quite clear in context that the older brother represents unbelieving Israel. The younger brother represents believing Israel, and not only believing Israel, but anyone who believes. And uh, because the younger brother really acts like a Gentile, Uh, he violates all the rules, but yet because he recognized that he was not worthy, he was able to gain right standing with his father. And that's really the message of the gospel in a nutshell. So the passage does not imply in any way that a person has to turn around, forsake their old life, forsake their old way of living in order uh, to get to heaven. Here's a question about... um, someone who they saw on a, on a program, a television program, and the person kept saying, God told me this, God told me that, and, and you know that I'm directly talking to God, I'm a prophet for God, and they wanted to know my thoughts on that. Well, uh, I don't believe that the uh, gift of prophecy and the way it's described in the Bible is active today. Uh, we have the Bible, we have the Word of God that gives us everything we need in, for life and godliness. It is the very Word of God. And uh, so we don't have new prophets that are writing new chapters to the Bible or speaking directly from God. I think the Holy Spirit can lead and guide and encourage and convict and so forth. And, and certainly, uh, you know, we, we, we have in that sense the leading from the Lord, uh, but that's different from revelation. And there's no new revelation today outside of uh, God's word, and there won't be until uh, Christ himself comes back. Uh, and so uh, I would be skeptical of anyone that really says, God told me this, God told me that. Now, we want to be gracious because all of us have said things like that. You know, uh, I, I can remember getting up in the pulpit at times and saying, Yeah, the Lord really. told me I was supposed to say this. Well, what I really mean is that the Holy Spirit put on my heart something that uh, I really felt burdened about, and I just felt led, uh, you know, to say it. Uh, That's different from God saying, thus saith the Lord, and speaking in terms of authoritative, revelatory information. So I would be skeptical of people that are out there claiming to have special, uh, you know, direct revelation from God. I mean, a lot of Uh, shysters have used that terminology through the years to gain money, gain popularity, gain fame. Um, And so I would just be skeptical of it. Uh, Here is a question about Romans chapter 6 and uh, the baptism that Paul talks about there. And uh, what kind of baptism is it? Let me read the passage uh, first, and then I'll answer the question. Uh, This is the beginning of Romans chapter 6, where Paul shifts gears into the subject of the life of a believer and the sanctification process and how we are to grow in our faith and the struggles that we have between the old man and the new man. And he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. 
how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And uh, of course, what he's doing there, whenever you see that phrase, certainly not, or in the old King James, it was God forbid. Uh, it's in Greek, it's meganoita. Uh, what he's doing is he's you know rejecting a false conclusion from a correct premise. So the correct premise is what he had said in the previous verse, the last verse of chapter uh, five, in which he said, or the next to the last verse, that where sin abounds, grace abounds on the more. In other words, you can't out-sin God. I'm going to be talking about that tomorrow morning on the Christian Underground News Network. That again, there's nothing that can undo uh, what Christ gave us at eternal life. Grace is sufficient uh, when he gave us eternal life. Uh, but that does not mean, just because you can't out-sin God, you can't out-sin grace, I should say, doesn't mean we should just keep on sinning to get more grace. That would be a false conclusion from a correct uh, premise. So very important to, to understand that is what Paul's doing whenever he uses that phraseology. Um, but then he goes on to say, don't you want to know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, what kind of baptism is that? Well, first of all, we need to understand the different kinds of baptism that are mentioned uh, in Scripture. Um, baptism is just an ancient cultural rite that predates Christianity by a couple thousand years at least. It was very uh, well documented even in Jewish times, uh, you know, before uh, Christ uh, in the first century you had baptism. You've got John the Baptist's baptism. In the Old Testament, you've got Moses' baptism. Of course, you've got Jesus got baptized himself. Uh, you've got uh, water baptism of Christians in the New Testament church. And of course, you've got Holy Spirit baptism. And in each case, there's some identification that is going on. In the Old Testament, Moses' baptism identified you with Moses' message, uh, the message of the Jewish law. A proselyte baptism in the Old Testament identified Gentiles also with uh, the Jews. Uh, John the Baptist's baptism identified people in the first century with his message, which was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as we know clearly from scripture, not everyone who was baptized in after hearing John's message was a believer. It had nothing to do with eternal life or eternal salvation. It was simply a way to say, hey, I agree with what you're saying, John, and I'm with you. And uh, But we know that there were some disciples, for example, in I think it's Acts 19, that received John's baptism, but had never been saved. And so Paul leads them to faith, and then they experience uh, water baptism. Uh, Jesus himself was baptized to identify himself with God, to, to show that he is, in fact, the Son of God, God in the flesh, part of the, the triune Godhead. And God speaks from heaven on that occasion and says, this is my beloved Son. Uh, and then you've got uh, uh, Christian water baptism, which happens uh, after conversion, and it's an outward expression of an inward experience, and it's just a way to uh, identify ourselves, not with Christ, but with the body of Christ, with the church, to say, hey, I've trusted in Christ, and I want everybody to know it. So water baptism of believers does not uh, get you into heaven. It's not required for salvation. It won't keep you out of heaven if you've never been water baptized, but it is something that should come after conversion, not as an infant, not as a means of eternal life, but as an outward expression of an inner experience. And then uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit also identifies us with something, and that's Christ. It's what the Holy Spirit does the moment you place your faith in Him. It's not something that happens later. It happens simultaneously 
with faith. And the moment you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes you, that is, identifies you with Christ, and you are now in Christ. And so if we go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul is making the point that since you've been baptized into Christ, which is Holy Spirit baptism at the moment of faith, then why in the world are you acting like one who hasn't come to faith in Christ? Why are you acting like an unbeliever? Why would you want to live in sin? Because you put sin to death uh, at the moment you uh, trusted Christ. And so uh, a lot of people, myself included, when they baptize people, will quote these verses, but not because we're suggesting that Romans 6, uh, you know, 4, uh, where it says, therefore we were buried with him by baptism unto death, or just as Christ was raised by the, to the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We're not suggesting that water baptism is what that's talking about, but water baptism does picture what Jesus Christ did for us, and that is he came to the earth, he was buried, and he rose again, the same way people walk down into the water, they are buried beneath the water, and they come back up. Uh, it's just a picture of the gospel, as it were, in the same way that the Lord's Supper is a picture of the gospel, the, the body and blood of Christ. So both of those are ordinances that we do uh, until Christ comes, and it's a way to identify us as Christians with other Christians. But Holy Spirit baptism is what identifies us with Christ. So I believe this passage is talking about Holy Spirit baptism. Uh, the next uh, question is about the wrath of God. Does God pour out his wrath upon the dead, or is his wrath only poured out upon uh, the living? Well, we need to understand a little bit about the wrath of God. So <clears throat> the, uh, the Bible tells us in John chapter 3, verse 36, uh, and this is uh, John the Baptist uh, speaking here, um, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So you've got you know two kinds of people in the world, and Romans 1 also talks about this, the wrath of God being revealed against all unbelievers. Uh, you've got child of God, children of God, and children of wrath. Uh, Ephesians 5 verse 6 says, uh, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And in the context there, he's talking about unbelievers. So basically, all unbelievers are under the wrath of God until such time as they place their faith in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, they become a child of God. They're no longer under the wrath of God. So no believer will ever face the wrath of God. Um, that's something that, uh, you know, if you hear a Bible teacher suggesting that a Christian can be under the wrath of God for any reason, you need to run, not walk away from that Bible teacher. It is false. It's false teaching. Uh, and uh, you, you, you know it just misunderstands the whole understanding of the wrath of God. There is also a prophetic wrath that culminates the age when, when God pours out his wrath on all unbelievers. That takes place first during the tribulation period with the sealed trumpet and bowl judgments and ultimately at the great white throne judgment. Uh, but no believer... Uh, has to ever worry about being under uh, God's wrath. So the answer is uh, both. He, he pours out his wrath ultimately on unbelievers for eternity. Uh, and again, that's that, that you know no one can say, well, that's not fair. Why is God doing that? Uh, God didn't do it. You did it. You sinned against a holy God. God didn't make Adam and Eve sin, and he didn't make you sin. You sinned of your own free will. And then God's been doing everything he can in your life to rescue you from the impending wrath. 
See, God is just. God has to do what he said he's going to do. And God very clearly warned, if in the day you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. And God's not a liar. He wasn't kidding. He wasn't joking. He's not winking and nodding at sin. He really meant it. And if he, if he didn't uh, do what he said he was going to do, then he would turn out to be unreliable, a liar, unfaithful, fickle, and the like. And so uh, God, nevertheless, even though he is just and sin has to be punished for eternity, he has set in motion an extraordinary plan of grace whereby his eternal son and our savior took your place on the cross, paid your penalty, paid your debt, and defeated death, hell, and the grave, satisfied the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means. He's satisfied that wrath. And all you have to do is accept it. Accept the payment on your behalf. It's simple. It's free. Cost you nothing. It's absolutely free. We are justified freely by God's grace, Romans 3.24. So if anybody ends up in the eternal wrath of God, they have nobody to blame but themselves. God's done everything he can to try to keep you out of it. But if you reject the gospel, if you reject the good news... Well, then it's on you. And so I would interject right here. If you're listening to this podcast by God's providence, you stumbled upon it or somebody sent it to you, don't put it off. Unless you've trusted Christ, you are a child of wrath. And someday that wrath will find you in the eternal lake of fire where you will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not because God is unloving, but because you are unwilling, unwilling to accept the free gift. You rejected God's rescue. Uh, and, and so now you'll have to pay uh, the price yourself. So, uh, you know, he pours out his wrath ultimately upon the dead, but uh, on the living during the tribulation period when the prophetic wrath of God takes shape, uh, then yeah, unbelievers will be hiding from uh, the wrath of God. Believers will be protected. Uh, this next question is about church membership. And is there a biblical basis uh, for church membership? Uh, you know, that's one of those things that is more of a, uh, you know, application of biblical examples than it is a, you know, actual chapter and verse command. Um, I do believe you can make the case uh, from a just an observation perspective about church membership. I'm not legalistic or dogmatic about it. Um, we've been in churches through the years that, that kept membership roles and some that haven't. Um, certainly, the details are absent from Scripture. There's no chapter and verse that says thou must have a membership class and a membership role and a membership covenant and those types of things. In fact, membership in general as a term is not used. But you do see in the early days of the church through the book of Acts, which gives us a history of the founding and early progress of the church for the first 30 years or so, that they they knew who was there because Luke, the historian, repeatedly says the Lord added to their number, the Lord added to their number, the Lord added to their number. Well, there's got to be a number to add to. So they clearly had some idea of how many were in and how many were not. So I, I don't think it's wrong to have church membership, but I don't think it's wrong not to have it. But either way, whether you have a formal way of uh, you know, keeping track of who's in the local assembly or not. You know, we're we're obligated to care for one another, recognize one another. Uh, the church, although sadly many churches function this way, especially the the mega churches, is not intended to be like a movie theater where you go sit for entertainment and go home, and you may or may not know anybody that's there, and it's just a one time experience. The church, by contrast, the local church is a you know, living body, a living organism, and the Bible 
gives us a lot of information about how to do church, what the leadership structure of the church is, what the purpose of the church is, what our role is, and we are accountable to the church, and we need one another, all of those one another passages. And so regardless of whether you have a formal membership process or not, uh, you ought to be fellowshipping with a local church and, and get plugged in and be a part of it. And it, you need to make sure that it's a Bible uh, believing church that is teaching the whole counsel of God. Uh, the follow-up to this question they asked about specific churches, particularly Calvinist churches, Reformed churches, things like that, that tend to emphasize the church body. Uh, I don't really think there's any correlation there. I don't think you know Calvinists get it wrong about church membership and non-Calvinists get it right or anything like that. I, I think, you know, and frankly, I think they're right to emphasize the the, the whole life body, the one another passages, that kind of thing. So uh, I don't really see uh, the relevance of, of those particular uh, groups as it comes to the issue of church membership. Uh, here's a person that made a comment about uh, a, a particular movie uh, that I had referenced, Mission Impossible, the, the latest one, and how that is so, um, you know, snatched from the headlines and so uh, prescient in terms of, you know, you know leading the way for what's going to happen and predict, you know, uh, envisioning what's going to happen. And I think that's by design. I think Hollywood is a tool of Satan to often uh, kind of tell us what they're going to do before they do it. Uh, but yeah, I would completely agree with that. Uh, I don't know if they had heard me mention that before or just uh, thought uh, it, uh, you know, was something they stumbled upon themselves. But it is definitely uh, the case that so many movies uh, are ahead of their time. I, I've said for many, many, many years now, art always imitates life. You know, there's this alleged debate, does art imitate life or life imitate art? In other words, do people watch movies and that gives them ideas and then they go act it out? Or are the movies already acting out and displaying for us on the big screen what's really happening uh, sometimes in dark smoke-filled rooms that people aren't aware of? And I think it's the latter. I think art always imitates life. This person has a question about Melchizedek. Was Melchizedek uh, a Christophany, meaning a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, uh, or was he just a historical uh, human uh, priest? I believe the latter. He was definitely not a Christophany. He was a historical figure. We don't know a lot about him, and the writer of Hebrews talks about how in that sense he's like Christ, uh, because we don't know about his mother, we don't know about his father, and that kind of thing. Uh, Christ is eternal. The eternal Son of God has no father. He was eternal. Now, he came to earth, and in his human form, he had a mother, but the Holy Spirit was uh, the one who conceived within her, and he had a you know a stepfather, so to speak, an earthly father who filled that role, but he was not biologically his uh, father. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times people will suggest that, well, maybe Melchizedek was really Jesus Christ. No, he was a historical figure. Abraham paid tithes to him, and um, uh, he, uh, we know very little about him other than what the text tells us in, in Genesis and in uh, some of the Psalms and then again in Hebrews. Um, this is a question about uh, demonic uh, deliverance ministries, uh, demon exorcism, casting out demons. Um, so I'm not afraid to answer this question, but I want to readily admit I'm, I'm not an expert. I have had uh, my share of run-ins in over 30 years of ministry with very real, tangible, spiritual warfare, uh, especially since uh, awakening to the Luciferian conspiracy and be, beginning to write and study about it now for 17 years. Um, 
The devil absolutely hates it. In fact, in the preface to my new book, I am I share some of the spiritual warfare that we have faced with the writing of this new book. If you've been following our ministry and read my last two books, you know that you know the devil hates what we're exposing, and he has absolutely been on the prowl and caused all kinds of problems. Um, so, uh, but I've never been in, directly involved in a ministry whose primary focus is that, is that of confronting uh, demons or demonically oppressed or demonically uh, indwelt uh, individuals. Uh, I have connected with some who have and uh, inter- interacted with some who have. Um, and, uh, you know, what I found is, frankly, a lot of times the people who are not afraid to confront satanic activity head-on are people outside of the traditional, you know, dispensational uh, camp, uh, because dispensationalists, unfortunately, historically have been a little bit rigid and a little bit stale and almost a little bit afraid of the Holy Spirit and afraid of spiritual warfare. That's a generalization. There have been some great books out there written about uh, demonology and, and the like. Uh, Merrill Unger's book comes to mind, uh, Demonology. But by and large, uh, we kind of keep that at arm's length. We tend to squabble and fight over other issues uh, rather than you know confronting the reality. And that's one of the things in my journey that has been uh, really I'm so thankful for is that the Lord allowed me to you know to be more open to the reality of spiritual warfare and the spiritual realm and the unseen realm, uh, both in terms of the angelic realm and the fallen angelic realm, the evil spirits. So uh, all I can tell you is what I've talked about recently at Prophecy Night. Uh, the Bible does give us some clear instruction on how to interact with people. We use the Word of God, which is the sword. It's the power. It's what Jesus used when he was confronted by the prince of demons himself, Satan. And uh, and we ought to also claim the name of Jesus. We know from gospel accounts that demons hate uh, that. Uh, so stick to Scripture. Scripture is your best guide on how to deal with demonic activity. I'd be a little bit leery of people that are out there selling their services as exorcists because, um, first of all, they may or may not have a good, solid theological background for doing that. And secondly, uh, sometimes they're they're not even genuine. They're just out to make a, a buck like the fortune tellers who hang out a shingle. Uh, let's see. Here's a question about um, how God saves by grace alone and they say, I often quote simply to the cross I cling, nothing else, nothing in my hand I bring. They say they wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, but they said, I've never really heard you talk much about sanctification. Wow. Well, they must be new to the podcast or certainly new to our ministry because I've written books about it. I talk about it extensively. In fact, frequently when I talk about the clarity of the gospel, almost instinctively, I can't even help it, I follow it up with, okay, now here's what believers should be doing. And uh, so sanctification, uh, I have charts on that in my chart book. Uh, you know, there, there's a progressive sanctification, a gradual setting apart of the believer into Christ-likeness and maturity as we read the Word of God, walk by faith and not by sight, walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh, those kinds of things. Uh, our sanctification process involves uh, recognizing our identity in Christ and living like the new man that we are. We just briefly talked about that in uh, Romans 6 a moment ago. So I, I feel like I am you know, equally passionate about helping believers grow mature in the faith and helping unbelievers come 
to faith to begin with. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate the comment. I, you know, certainly will, uh, you know, keep in, keep that in mind in terms of trying to, you know, mention that. But there's plenty of resources on our website and in previous podcasts and videos about that. I did a whole video series once. I think it's still available for streaming at our online store called Dying to Live and how the believer is supposed to live out their life uh, and, and grow in, uh, in, in grace and knowledge of, of the Lord. So um, let's see. Here is a question, a very good question. These are the kinds of questions that, that always uh, really impress me because it shows that someone is really thinking theologically. Remember, theology is a process of connecting the dots of Scripture and drawing some conclusions. Bible exposition is a process of reading a particular text and explaining what it means in its literal, grammatical, historical uh, sense. And so there are great Bible expositors out there that can understand a particular passage, uh, but my passion and my degree uh, is in systematic theology, which is then having understood what the passages mean, comparing Scripture with Scripture, cross-referencing, and and really uh, you know drawing some timeless truths from it. So theology is a process, not a product. And this person is engaging in theology when they asked, in light of the fact that God has promised Israel a homeland eternally and that it's his holy land, does that mean that the destruction of the new heaven and the new earth is really just a renovation because otherwise you would have to recreate a new uh, homeland for them. Well, that's one of those things I, I agree with the premise, but I don't agree with the conclusion. Uh, absolutely, God has promised Israel a homeland. It is his holy land. They defiled it. And, uh, you know, in the sense that, uh, you know, they sinned and rebelled against a holy God. And God is going to destroy it. And he's going to recreate a new homeland, a new holy land, a new Jerusalem, the Bible calls it, that is without sin. And the parallel to the spiritual life of human beings is, I think, striking. You know, when you get saved... God doesn't just put a Band-Aid on, on the old nature, on the old man. He gives you an entirely new man. So the new man, the new nature, takes up residence within you, namely the Holy Spirit, and it is uh, right alongside the old man. So it does not eradicate the old man, nor is it simply a renovation or an improvement on the old man. There's this struggle, the new man and the old man. So right now there's the old Jerusalem, which, yes, it's uh, God's holy land, uh, but he will destroy it and he will give Israel a perfect holy land someday called the new uh, Jerusalem. Uh, here's a question about speaking in tongues. Um, we do have uh, a whole uh, teaching document that I've uh, taught through the years on tongues. It's available, I think, in our premium content section of the website uh, which is available uh, for $20. Just click premium content. It'll tell you how to subscribe. And by the way, if you do, we give you a $20 uh, coupon code or a gift code to use at the online store. So it's basically free, uh, but uh, you know you can get access to all my archives of back when I was teaching full-time and old class notes and sermon notes, tons of hun uh, hundreds of audio files of old sermons. Uh, um, you know, the caveat there is just remember, theology is a process. And some of my messages from 20 years ago or more, I may have refined my theology and gotten a better understanding of it through the years. So I reserve the right to correct myself. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, if you're interested in that document, I think that's available. I know that's available in our archive section there of the premium content. But the short answer is, uh, I believe, and I think I answered this in a previous uh, you know, a podcast of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions, um, 
you know, there are certain gifts that were revelatory in nature that were intended to serve a purpose uh, during the first century apostolic age. Tongues is one of those. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah even tells us that tongues were going to be a, a means of validating the gospel to the nation of Israel, that what was happening uh, with their Messiah who had been crucified and resurrected was indeed legitimate. They needed a sign. Uh, tongues then are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to those who believe not. It's a way to show them this is a legitimate movement of God. Uh, today, the Bible is God's proof. The Bible is God's unwavering standard that convicts and reproves, and uh, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, as Hebrews 4.12 says. So we don't need revelatory signs, like I mentioned earlier about prophets, to validate what is of God and what isn't. We have his word. So just run it through the grid of scripture and let the, the, the word of God, the written word of God, either validate or invalidate it. So uh, so I think tongues phased out. We know that historically as well as biblically, uh, but at least as being a normative, popular, common part of uh, the local church. Uh, what I will say is since the, way, the first wave of the, the modern charismatic movement started, uh, what commonly is referred to as tongues and uh, those within the charismatic movement, which we have a lot of friends in that realm, we respect them and love them. I've spoken in churches that are charismatic, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, some Calvary chapels, things like that. Uh, we love them, respect them, but uh, they, I, I believe, make a, a mistake when they when they have redefined the meaning of tongues in the book of Acts and the book of 1 Corinthians to, to refer to some type of random syllabification or gibberish, uh, just this sort of nonsensical words coming out of the mouth. Uh, in the Bible, glossolalia, tongues, always referred to a known but unlearned language. It was always a known language. Uh, so if a person began speaking fluently in a language they had never studied, that was the miracle of tongues. Um, and then someone else could have the, the gift of interpretation, and then they, even though you know they might not know that language, they could interpret what they were saying and let everybody else in the audience know. Uh, so if you contrast that with what commonly is referred to as speaking in tongues today, uh, it's not that at all. It's just this random syllabification. And so uh, in my uh, article about that, or my notes about that, I talk about how I'm not questioning the motives. I don't think everybody who speaks in tongues is somehow, you know, making it up or faking it. I certainly don't think they're demon-possessed necessarily. I think they could be making it up. They could be faking it. It could be demonic. Who knows? In certain cases. But I don't think that's the case most of the time. I think mostly it's a a genuine psychological expression of some unction that's going on in them, and they just have been raised in a culture and a church background that, that sort of teaches them that that's a, a way to express uh, their love and devotion to the Lord. And so I just think, you know, if you search the scriptures and understand uh, the subject in context, you'll find out that that's not uh, what was going on back in the first century. Now, as far as can that happen today, I think it can happen in isolated cases where miraculously a person who's never studied a language is given by the Lord the ability to speak miraculously in that language. We have countless tales of that from uh, missionaries and, and situations. But that's not what, what the Bible talks about as the gift of speaking in tongues. I would classify that as a miracle. Um, the gift of speaking in tongues was something that a particular person was given by the Holy Spirit, and they could do it all the time, anytime uh, you know, they wanted. And so, uh, so that's kind of what my take on uh, tongues is. Again, you can find more at our 
website under the premium content section. Uh, here's a question about John 10, 10, where Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come that you may have life, and that more abundantly. What is the abundant life? Well, that's a great question. It gives me another chance yet again to talk about sanctification, which I, which I do often. Uh, so there is both a a quantity, a quantitative aspect to eternal life, as well as a qualitative aspect to eternal life. Quantitatively, you get eternal life the moment you believe the gospel. And at that moment, Jesus says, you have passed from death to life and shall never pass, never come into judgment. You are born again. Your home in heaven is secure. But your eternal life, remember, starts the moment you trust Christ. And most people, the moment they trust Christ, they still have a lot of living to do on this old earth, sold under sin. And so that life, uh, you can enjoy more of it, uh, and to the fullest, if you will, to the extent that you are abiding in Christ, remaining close to Christ, living in close fellowship with Him. That's what the book of 1 John is all about. He said, I'm writing you this letter so that your joy may be full. And a lot of Christians go through their lives, you know, not, frankly, missing out on the richness of the abundant life, that richness uh, of life. So Jesus came to have life, but he also wants us to have it even more abundantly. And there are degrees of, you know, abundant life that, that Christians experience to the extent that they're following the Word of God, living in the Spirit, not after the flesh, and uh, just uh, producing the fruit of the Spirit. So that's what Jesus was talking about there in John 10.10. 10. Uh, here's a question about Daniel 2.43 and the reference to the seed. And I've been asked this a few times. I remember first time first time I was ever asked it. I, I remember I was at in the pulpit and uh, somebody asked a question and it, and it was like one of those aha moments that I go, wow, I can't tell you how many times I've written about, studied, read Daniel 2, written charts about it, and it never really, I never really caught that reference. So Daniel 2.43, of course, is talking about Nebuchadnezzar's a dream, and it says of the uh, of the feet, referring to the revived Roman Empire. And this is Daniel two forty three. In that you saw the iron mixed with common clay; they will combine with one another in the seed of men. Uh, that's the verse that they put in the email, but that's not the New King James. So let me read it from the New King James. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. Uh, that's a better Hebrew rendering. But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And so the question has been, is part of this a reference to some type of hybrid, uh, hybridization of demonic or evil spirits with humanity? And, you know, ever since I got that first question, and it's come up a few other times uh, since then, I've been asking everyone I know to, to think about it, and, and this answer I get is the same thing. Oh, I never thought about that. And these are some of the top eschatology experts in the world that I have the privilege of rubbing shoulders with and sharing the platform with. So the short answer is I don't really know. Uh, I don't know if I can give a definitive answer on it, but it is a fascinating uh you know, question, what is, is there any significance there uh, to uh, the seed? Um, you know, uh, I've always, before I really thought about it, and this is what I love about theology is it's a lifelong process. 
I always just focused on the fact that it's talking about the unstable nature of the Roman Empire and how short-lived it's going to be, other, unlike other empires, including the first Roman Empire, uh, and that it's, it's going to be mingled with you know, um, good people, bad people, not morally in the sense of their relationship with the Lord, but I just mean you know, the, it's going to be a very uh, tenuous, unsteady kingdom with a lot of competing agendas and so forth. That, that's kind of the way I've taken it. And that may be the best way to take it. But in light of, you know, the whole concept in Genesis 6 of the hybrids and the Nephilim, um, you know, it, it could be something more to it than that. So stay tuned. Uh, you know, you guys will be the first to know if I come up with any brilliant uh, answers to that question. Uh, another great question from uh, Matthew 27, 19, when Pilate basically, uh, let me call it up here on the New King James, Pilate's wife basically warns him and uh, says to him, have nothing to do with this just man, talking about Jesus, of course, because I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. And the question was, where did that dream uh, come from? I think the answer is pretty clear contextually. It's from the Lord. This is the first time uh, in any historical record that we know of where a Roman actually commends, uh, you know, Jesus as being just or righteous, and uh, that's what God, I believe, put on the heart of Pilate's wife, and she says, "Have nothing to do with this just man, this righteous uh, man." And uh, so I think the Lord's the one that put it in there. Of course, uh, Pilate ignored it, and uh, and uh, you know he he did. Uh, do his best, you know, to try to, uh, you know, give the, the Jews and the Romans to combat together every opportunity uh, to, uh, you know, do the right thing. But in the end, they said, give us uh, uh, Barabbas. And so, yeah, I think that was the Lord that uh, was uh, kind of giving a message, as it were, through her. Uh, here's a question about to biometric data in this day and age of, you know, CCTV cameras and information being collected on every transaction and on the internet tracking and when you fly and all of that. The question is, is there a biblical reason why allowing that information to be collected and used is wrong? So again, that's another good question. You're basically coming at it from another uh, angle. I've answered it many times, but don't mind answering it again. Uh, the reality is, I don't think there's a moral reason not to do this. Uh, again, we're not talking about the mark of the beast here. The mark of the beast does not come into play until Revelation 13, after the rapture, at the midpoint of the tribulation. Uh, but I think there are practical reasons. Um, so I don't think you're sinning if you use a credit card or do an internet search or you know, you know, you know, use some of the things like Siri and, and uh, Alexa. There's some practical reasons for that. You know, as I've mentioned, you know, we ideally would love to kind of shut ourselves off as a family and uh, be off the grid, but we have smartphones, we use technology, I'm recording this podcast right now over the air, so I think we want to use the tools as best we can until the Lord comes back or until we die to further the gospel and try to make a difference in this world, but you do it eyes wide open, you recognize that, uh, you know, you're, you are being tracked and, and, and so forth. Uh, someone told me long ago, 
uh, I was already awake at this time, so I had had my sort of aha moment with uh, my friend Shane years ago when we when I began to go down the rabbit hole about the Luciferian conspiracy. Uh, but still, I was still new to it all. And they said, look, don't ever put anything in an email that you don't want to see on CNN in the evening news. And I think that's a good point because it's all tracked. Uh, so I, I try not to put anything uh, questionable or, you know, ugly or ungracious in an email because it could come back to bite you. Uh, I mean, you shouldn't be ungracious anyway, but uh, if I'm going to be ungracious, I want I don't want there to be a record of it, I guess is what I'm saying. But uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, you just have to do it case by case. Um, you know, there's a, there's a practical side of it, but is it wrong? No, I don't think it's morally wrong to, you know, to allow yourself to be tracked in some of those ways. Uh, all right, this next question I've been waiting to get to uh, since I got it. I really had to resist the urge to, to write an email back uh, because uh, I just, I know our listeners will, uh, will benefit from it. And so uh, uh, the question is, about uh, I was on a program recently, and I won't mention the name of the program because that's not uh, the point. But that same host had another guest on, who was, uh, you know, not clear about the gospel, and then this host ended up also engaging in a discussion about the clarity and accuracy of the gospel, and the host was was not accurate. The host, as I understand it, was suggesting that you've got to forsake all your sins and make a U-turn and turn away from all your sins to, if you really want to get saved, uh, which, of course, you know, I don't agree with. And so this person said, hey, you know, I, it's kind of interesting, kind of puzzling to me that, you know, here's, you know, J.B. Hickson, who appears on this show. Uh, this person that wrote the email shares uh, my passion for the clarity and accuracy of the gospel. They come from a grace position, a grace, a dispensational grace viewpoint, which I think is the biblical viewpoint. And so they were saying, hey, um, you know, is this is the question, is being on a program with someone who has uh, this type of false gospel leanings really the best use of my time? I appreciate the succinct question. It is well-worded. And I have a very unequivocal emphatic answer. And the answer is absolutely yes, it's worth my time. Um, for 30 years, over 30 years, I have uh, you know, committed to the Lord that wherever he will give me the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, I will go. Uh, and I've been on in Reformed conferences. I've been in Desiring God, T4G, Ligonier conferences. I've been at CREC conferences. I've been at conferences whose entire... Uh, viewpoint theologically differs from mine in soteriology and eschatology but the thing is in all those cases people know where i stand and as i engage with people in discussions at my resource table between sessions uh you know they have no question where we stand the very name of our ministry is clear where we stand they know i'm a a, a dispensationalist and very active in some of the leading dispensational think tanks of our day so uh, I don't think it compromises in any way my my testimony or my reputation. But, and, and the reality is, you know, if I only went on programs who agree with me, where the hosts agree with me, then chances are their audience is already going to be pretty clear on the gospel. And essentially, we're just all preaching to ourselves. Uh, so I absolutely love when I get to be on shows where either I know ahead of time they're not always accurate on the gospel, or in, in recent years, since my new books came out, I've had the chance to go on shows that are 
not explicitly biblical or theological, even though they might be conservative Christian hosts. They're mostly into politics and conservatism and Trump and this and that. And everywhere we go, uh, if, if I forget, it's an exception, and it's a rare exception, but everywhere we go, I share the gospel, and I try to do so clearly and accurately. Uh, and so, absolutely, I think it's the best use of my time, and uh, I hope I get in- invited back on that program. And, you know, uh, you've heard, if you've listened to me enough, you've heard me sometimes, uh, you know, have to softly and graciously in real time as I'm being interviewed, you know, restate uh, some things. And uh, and that's just, you know, always been my passion. I, I can tell a quick story. I, I remember one time when I was pastoring a, a church, a, another church, not Plum Creek Chapel, but we had a African a, a boys choir come in and man, they were wonderful. Just just excellent talent and, and really moving uh, production. But part of their program for that service was at the end, one of their the young men, I think he was probably 16, maybe 18, uh, was tasked with giving a little devotional at the end of their performance. And he got up, and, and bless his heart, he completely obliterated the gospel. I mean, he was just, he didn't know, you know, grace for, you know, from one end to the other. I mean, he was just all over the map theologically. His heart was in the right spot. He loved the Lord, but but it was not a good appeal of to get saved. It just wasn't. And so what did I do when I got up to close out the service? Did I call him out? Did I rebuke him? Did I, you know, publicly embarrass him? No, not at all. I didn't even reference what he said. What I did instead was simply graciously give the gospel and uh, just, you know, uh, once again, restate it, but this time in biblical uh, terms. And so that's what I try to do on these shows. And so yeah, short answer is absolutely. I'll go on any program that'll have me if they'll give me a, a free mic to just uh, share uh, the gospel. So thanks for that question. Uh, a couple more here, a few more here before we run out of time. Uh, here's a great question. Uh, you have mentioned the practice of Bible verse memory as a child. Uh, is there a specific method or organization that you uh, utilize? And so, yeah, great question. I grew up using what was then known as Bible Memory Association or BMA. Uh, it has since become Scripture Memory Fellowship, but it's the same uh, organization, just a new name, or maybe they merged with another one. But anyway, it's it's a 70-year history. So I would encourage you to go to scripturememory.com scripturememory.com. They have some great resources uh, that uh, you can uh, use, you know, an app and some other tools, some physical paper tools that they'll mail you uh, for studying and memorizing uh, scripture. Um, Here we go. Matthew 24, 13, another Bible question. Um, And the question is, uh, many pastors and cults say that we must endure to the end to be saved based on Matthew 24, 13. Uh, can you ex- basically, they're saying, can you explain the meaning of that verse? Absolutely, and I have uh, many times before, but uh, it's a great question. So, of course, Matthew 24, 13, if you just read it out of context, it says, says simply, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Well, uh, what does that mean? First of all, as a good Berean and a good student of Scripture, you need to make sure you know what the words mean. The word saved does not mean eternally. Uh, whenever you see the word saved, you should say saved from what? It's used 107 times in the New Testament. It's the Greek word, so, the Greek verb, sotzo. And uh, 58% of the time, it has nothing to do with heaven or hell or eternal life. It just means to be rescued from 
a sickness or a disease or a shipwreck or danger or that kind of thing. And in this context, Jesus is talking about the future tribulation period, and he's talking to the future nation of Israel. And uh, he basically says, uh, it's going to be tough sledding for those of you who are alive then. Uh, you need to not be deceived. Don't believe the Antichrist. Don't take the false the, the mark of the beast. He doesn't say mark of the beast in the Olivet Discourse, but by comparing it with uh, Revelation, which the parallels are, are striking, uh, you, you basically that's what he's warning against is don't fall prey to the false prophet. And then he says, all these bad things are going to happen, and then the end is going to come, meaning the return of Christ. I'm going to come back and usher in the long-awaited kingdom. And it's in that context that he says, if you survive to the end, then you'll be delivered. That's what the word saved means, delivered into the kingdom. You'll be delivered from what? From the the hell that was breaking loose on earth into the kingdom physically when Jesus Christ sits on the throne. So many believers will be martyred during the tribulation period. Uh, they will not live, they will die, and then they will come back uh, at the second coming with Christ and be resurrected and, and enter into the kingdom then. Uh, but uh, many will survive. They'll hide out in the hills and they'll you know, somehow avoid uh, the death camps and the, the uh, you know, Stasi that are out there rounding up uh, you know, dissidents uh, who refuse to take the mark and chopping off their heads. And it's those who endured the end that will get to physically enter the kingdom in their physical bodies. So that has nothing to do with eternal salvation, uh, not mentioned in the context at all. It's all about Israel, and those who survive the tribulation uh, will get into the kingdom uh, in their physical bodies. They'll be delivered into it. The rest of them will have their bodies resurrected, uh, Daniel 12, 2, Revelation 20, and so forth. Uh, 20 verses 4 and 5. All right, so thanks for that question. Um, as a reminder, uh, and we're not trying to sell anything here, but I just I frequently think of things that I've done and produced over the years that are helpful on a topic. I do have an eight-video series on the Olivet Discourse, verse by verse through the whole thing, that's available for streaming at notbyworks.org. So click on the store button and uh, go through the streaming video section, and you can you can check that out if you want more information about the Olivet Discourse. Um, another question, uh, actually not so much a question, but I, I left it in here just to comment, uh, where they mention a bunch of uh, great teachers, many of whom I have worked with and know and, and really value, and they said, hey, it would be awesome uh, if you could get some of those guys on your show. Well, thanks for the suggestion. You know, we are uh, we are expanding our guest list, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I would love to get some of those folks on. And so stay tuned. We'll see if the Lord can can work that out. Uh, we have some great guests already, but we, we, you know, there's a lot of great people out there that have something to contribute to uh, the discussion. Uh, this person, here's another financial question. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to put away, you know, a small amount of cash and, and, and I have some savings, but what's the safest place for it? Uh, should I put it in smaller credit unions, uh, large chain banks, or should I just, uh, you know, what should I do with it? Well, uh, of course, as you know, I'm not a financial advisor. I, I am simply giving you my studied opinion on what I believe in light of world events and biblical prophecy you might want to consider. Uh, and I believe you should not leave anything in a bank that you're not prepared to lose. Uh, because a bank, while at one time it was 
very normal and very good place to have your money. It was the safest place to have your money. It was a great, just, you know, kept you, you know, kept you from being robbed. And when people would keep money in their mattress, you know, they were always at risk. So people put it in the banks and in safety deposit boxes and things like that. You could go make withdrawals. You could write checks. It was just an easy way to transact business. In these unsettling times, I think that's very risky. And because of the digital age and the coming digital currency and, and FedNow system and all of that, I think uh, it, with a flip of a switch, it could all go away. So I would only leave as much in actual banks, credit unions, savings accounts, anything like that, investment portfolios, as you're prepared to lose in case you do lose. It doesn't mean you're going to. Um, but, you know, to me, the risk is too great. So even though I might be not making as much of a return on the investment by pulling it out, uh, I'm still going to have it. So my advice is invest it in other more tangible commodities. Uh, that's, that's what I suggest. Obviously, you have to make your own decision and do what you feel is best. Uh, but that would be uh, my suggestion there. Uh, here's a great question about 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And, uh, you know, this is one of those passages that people often point to uh, to suggest, well, you know, if you cross this line, you're not a believer. You know, you can't possibly be saved. And it's 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Let me read the text here. Um, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. All right, so again, you know, I can't tell you how many people say, well, see, it says right there, if you're a homosexual, you're going to hell. There's no way a homosexual can be a Christian. That's not what this says. The whole passage is in the context is framed about justification versus not justification. Have you been justified by faith? He starts out by saying the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. Unrighteous positionally, those who've never placed their faith in Christ. And we know that because at the end of this little section, he says, you used to be like that. You used to be unjustified, but now you've been washed and you've been sanctified, and this context is using sanctified there as positionally, uh, and you've been justified. Just three ways of saying the same things. You're saved. So he's contrasting believers with unbelievers. And then he just gives, uh, you know, a kind of a uh, flowery, for lack of a, def a better uh, description, uh, you know, characteristic of some of these unjustified, unbelieving, you know, non Christians. Uh, and he, but it's not because they're fornicators or idolaters or adulterers that they're going to hell. It's because they're unrighteous. You know, that's uh, the key. So the whole key hinges on unrighteous. So there are other passages, too, that give this litany list of sins, but they're not suggesting that if you do those sins, you will go to hell. It's that those sins are the natural outgrowth of an unbeliever. And so when a believer acts like that, they're acting like an unbeliever. Uh, so by the way, you know, we always zero right in on the biggies like homosexuality, sodomy, fornication, adultery. But this same passage in 1 Corinthians 6 talks about thieves and coveting and getting drunk. You ever been, you ever coveted? Of course you have. You ever been drunk? Some of you probably have. You ever stolen anything? Of course you have. Uh, so does that mean you're going to hell? Now I can hear what people will say. Oh, well, he's talking about a lifestyle of that. If you you know, habitually do that or characteristically do that. Nope, he doesn't say that at all. 
He does not say that at all. He simply lists those activities. And we see the same thing in a, a parallel passage theologically of Ephesians uh, chapter uh, 5, uh, when he says, uh, Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us. So he's including himself here. He's clearly talking about believers. He says, don't let fornication and uncleanness or covetousness even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. In other words, the right thing for Christians to do is to avoid those sins of the flesh, those old nature things. That's not normal for you to do it. He wouldn't command you not to do it if it weren't possible for you to do it. And the fact is, Christians sin, and there's no sin that a believer can that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he caters to the flesh, and that's when he then goes on to say, uh, you know, uh, where is it here? Um, you know that that this type of behavior. Um, has you know none of this kind of behavior, no fornicator, no unclean person, no covetous person, no idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. I believe that's talking there not about rewards, but about actually getting into the kingdom because he's saying that's that's what the old person was, the old man was. Same thing in Galatians 5. So we could go through many passages, but the point is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 is not suggesting that you know, a person who habitually sins is going to hell. It's just saying a person who habitually sins, it doesn't even say habitually, but it's saying a person who commits these sins even once is acting like an unjustified person. And the goal for believers is to act like a justified person. We are justified positionally. We are righteous positionally. We should strive to have our practice reflect the new man, not the old man. Uh, then a question here about 1 Thessalonians 4.16, when it talks about the dead in Christ rising first at the rapture of the church, and Revelation chapter 20, when it talks about the resurrection. And the question is, are those talking about the same resurrection? No, they are not. The resurrection in chapter 20 of Revelation uh, comes at the end uh, of the uh, millennium. Uh, actually, it comes, sorry, it comes at the end of the tribulation prior to the start of the 1,000 years. I don't have the text in front of me, but uh, so at, when Christ comes back, there will be a resurrection, and that's uh, the resurrection of tribulation saints who died, the ones I mentioned a moment ago who don't endure to the end. They don't survive physically in their bodies until the end of that seven years. And uh, so that's talking about tribulation saints. First Thessalonians 4.16 is talking about church-age saints. Um Here's a, another great question. Uh, what language was spoken in the Garden of Eden? Uh, well, you know, if I was Abel, I could tell you. Uh, no, just kidding. Abel wasn't in the Garden, actually. Um, I don't know. You know, we don't really know. Um, but uh, it'll be one language as the Bible comes full circle again uh, to a pre-fall Edenic uh, state. Um, and this is a question... Um, you know, about weather modification and how the government is controlling the weather, which I've written about in Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1, and talked about for many years, done some videos on. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, how they've got uh, new technology that, you know, is controlling the weather. And, um, you know, this person, I just, I, I left this in here just to affirm and, and you know what they were suggesting and saying and that absolutely there's no question that weather is uh, is manipulated and then the final question of the day is another question we get a lot of these about 
you know, individual people. And this is a question about uh, Jimmy Evans. I don't know the answer to your question. Is he part of the new apostolic reformation? I actually looked it up. Uh, I have some concerns because that organization that he's a part of uh, includes uh, uh, you know, several Reformed people, like Mark Driscoll, for example, is a part of it. According to their website, he's on the board or one of the teachers or something. Uh, so I, w- I have some just instinctive red flags about uh, that ministry, uh, but I can't say for sure. I've never met the man, and I've not done a lot of research on it. And uh, with that, let me mention... Too, and this is, I don't mean this as a, in any sense, a, a criticism at all of those of you that have written in to ask about individual people. But remember, I'm not the ultimate arbiter of who's good and who's not, and who's theologically sound and who's not. I, I appreciate that people want my opinion and, and I'm happy to give it. But, you know, I, you know, with a little research, you can kind of come to your own conclusions sometimes. Look at their about section on their website, read their doctrinal statement if they have one. Just do a quick perusal of some of the things that they say. And, uh, you know, usually, you know, if you know the Word of God and you are, have a good, solid biblical dispensational framework, some red flags will emerge if, if, they, if there are some. So, anyway, thanks again, everyone. Uh, hope this was helpful. It was edifying. I enjoy it. I enjoy answering your questions. Uh, don't forget, uh, we've got some podcasts coming uh, tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to be talking about things that can never undo the believer's salvation on Christian Underground News Network in the morning. Tomorrow night is our Prophecy Night, a dedicated Q&A. So if you get your questions in today and throughout the day tomorrow, um, they they may very well be answered quickly uh, tomorrow night at, I mean, uh, yeah, at Prophecy Night. So uh, send us your questions. And then uh, Wednesday, World Events Update with Randy. Randy, Thursday, Dr. Nathan Jones of Lamb and Lion Ministries to continue our discussion about the mighty angels of the book of Revelation. Our technologist, Shane, will be back on Friday to talk about the double-edged sword of technology and tyranny. And then our Saturday podcast with Randy on preparedness as we talk about how to prepare for a natural disaster. So thank you every, very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, don't forget to check out our website at notbyworks.org. If we can help in any way, give us a call at 1-800-895-1851. And, uh, you know, as always, we appreciate and need your prayers and your faithful support. And uh, we love you guys very much. God bless.